Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Jane's World of Intelligence. Sean, you and I have spoken on numerous occasions about coming back to topics that we've discussed in previous episodes of this. And one of them, it seems to me, the mis and disinformation in the open source environment is frankly well overdue for a review. So Sean, thank you for joining us as ever. Today, I think we're gonna go back and actually start answering many of the questions that we've generated today around mis and disinformation. Good to be here, Harry. And uh, as you said, really important subject that we cover almost on every single podcast we've done so far. Yeah. How many times have we said we'll come back to that and never yeah. have? So today we're going to do just that. So today, our guest, Di Cook. Hello, Di. Hello. Thank you for having me. Pleasure, as always. Di Cook is a research fellow in the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, focusing on emerging technology. Given her role, not surprisingly, her areas of expertise include emerging technology policy within a defense and intelligence context, AI governance and risk, open source intelligence, and deception and counter-deception efforts in the digital space, which is our focus for today. Dai has worked on policy-relevant research and activities at the intersection of technology and security across academia, government, and industry. For example, most recently, Dai was seconded with the UK MOD to engage in AI policy development, where she built the MOD's assurance guidance materials to direct and inform its approach to AI operationalization in accordance with its AI ethical principles. A matter some listeners may remember we looked at with Dr. Amy Ziegert recently. Dai has also considerable experience in academic research with Cambridge, St Andrews and King College London, where she is currently undertaking a PhD in war studies. I wonder, Dai, where you find the time. Ah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So Dai, um, what we'll start with is just a couple of definitions. I'll get Sean to remind us all what we mean by open source intelligence. I think that's important. Then I'll come to you, if I may, just give your interpretation, your definition of what we mean by mis and disinformation. So, Sean, your four points, please, for the open source intelligence definition. Yeah, thanks, Harry. I know we've covered this uh, several times before, but I think it is important. There's a lot of work going on within the intelligence community right now to define what they mean by OSINT. And there's as many different definitions as there are organizations, which in itself is illustrative because it reflects the varieties of different sources and applications of, of OSINT in the community. But but for, for me, and I think we agreed for James as well, you know, I think we've agreed that it really has to include four elements. The first of those is that it has to be derived for information that is freely or commercially available to all. Secondly, it has to be derived from legal and, as we discussed previously, ethical sources and techniques. And then the final two really are common to all intelligence capabilities. One, that it must be applied to a specific problem set or requirement. And finally, and probably most important, it has to add value, the so what. Yeah, perfect. So, Di, during many, many conversations around open source information from which we derive intelligence insights, uh, one of the most frequent concerns about the use of the open source or publicly available uh, domain is that it is littered with mis and disinformation, which, as we've said, we're going to talk about today in terms of how we might mitigate that. But how do you define, Di, what we mean by mis and disinformation? Yeah, Harry, that's a great question. So both mis and disinformation consist of false content or false information 
But the, the key difference between the two is the intent behind that. So misinformation um, you would define as false information that is created and spread without necessarily an intent to harm or deceive. So there's not a specific intent to do something um, malicious with it, where, um, whereas disinformation has that malicious intent included. So that's sharing a false information with a deliberate intent to cause harm in some manner, whether it be physical, mental, or otherwise. Um, that's very good. So, Di, is it fair to say that both mis- and disinformation can have the same effect? The outcome could be the same in that somebody is not understanding things as they actually are, but actually one is driven by a specific intent to create that outcome, whereas the other is a mistake. It's a, it's almost a, a secondary effect of somebody just not understanding something. Yeah, and that's actually um, a really key point as well, is even though that the intent behind how mis- and disinformation might be shared is different, both can have significant impacts on public opinion in, in things like political elections, crisis response, conflict, healthcare considerations, and both can cause significant harm, whether or not it's on purpose. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a great definition, that the intent. I just wonder, Diane, I'll be really interested in your views here. Is there is there almost a sliding scale there? Because you might intend to change people's behaviours, but you might think that's for the right reasons, even though you're not actually telling the truth. And, you know, the classic case on that might be the, you know, the government response to the COVID crisis, where for altruistic reasons, it wanted to change the dynamic of the population or, or certainly had the way they behaved, but wasn't necessarily being as open with the the facts as they could have been. So so for me, I, I see almost, I used to really look at the right disinformation and, and the misinformation completely different but is there almost a sliding scale it's quite a complex and gray area yeah i would completely agree i think especially if you're looking at the impact that's there's definitely a sliding scale there um so examples of uh, misinformation that can cause significant harm would be definitely the misinformation around the height of the pandemic in terms of you know ignoring vaccines and thinking they're not necessary or they're a conspiracy Another example would be uh, misinformation spread after the Boston bombings or the Boston Marathon or accusing a number of innocent individuals of being responsible. And so in many cases, misinformation can be equally as harmful as disinformation. On average, though, because disinformation has that intent to harm and that focus to try to do harm, you could argue when comparing the two, mis disinformation is more likely to try to cause harm in the end because of that. But it's not a um, binary categorization. Yeah, I, I suspect we could probably spend the next 25, 30 minutes talking about the definition, but we won't. We'll move on. Let's accept for now, then, that the basis of our definition is that misinformation is a misunderstanding that's created without intent, whereas the intent with disinformation is to actually achieve an outcome uh, of misunderstanding by an audience, and that those two definitions pivot around the intent. One is accidental. The other is more purposeful. Is that fair? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. All right. So let's pick up then, Di and Sean, two parts of how we might approach mitigation. Now, traditionally, in terms of years gone by, tradecraft, the intelligence tradecraft was there to ensure that we did the very best we could to find, quote, the truth of a situation to enable decisions to be made based on what we provided the decision maker in the analysis we were doing. So Sean, I'll come to you in a second in terms of the tradecraft that might enable us to mitigate mis or disinformation. But Di, with your expertise and background, you'll expect me to then pivot back to you and say, so how do we use 
artificial intelligence and other advanced technologies to help us mitigate this um, real problem of mis- and disinformation. Of course. Before we delve into how technology is serving counter disinformation efforts, it's worth first exploring how it is also being employed to enhance disinformation capabilities. One type of technology that I would like to explore in particular um, during this conversation is uh, artificial intelligence. In this case, specifically machine learning uh, to create fake digital media. Um, You'll probably know it better as deepfakes, and this is AI-generated or synthetic media of images, audio, or video of situations or things that didn't happen or don't actually exist. Um, And this could be anything from creating a photograph of someone who isn't real or cloning the voice of a real person and making them say something they never actually said in real life. Most people have likely heard about deepfakes of uh, celebrities or famous figures, such as the 2018 deepfake video of Obama um, that was widely circulated, or the more recent deepfake videos of Tom Cruise uh, on TikTok. However, as synthetic media becomes more sophisticated and easier to use, we're seeing an increasing number of instances of it being employed for disinformation purposes specifically, many of which look to be state-sponsored. For example, we've seen a number of incidences of deepfakes popping up around the Ukrainian invasion. The most well-known one so far has been a deepfake video of President Zelensky ordering Ukrainian troops to surrender, and that was circulated all over social media last March. It was debunked relatively quickly as it wasn't a particularly good fake, but that's not always the case. Later in June, mayors of European cities were duped into believing they were holding video calls with Mayor Klitschko because of a much more sophisticated live deep fake that an impersonator was using during the conversation. And uh, many of them admit that they didn't realize it wasn't Klitschko until the impersonator actively started behaving in ways that just didn't make sense. And so that's a much more sophisticated deep fake. And as this technology continues to get better and the barriers to employing it get lower, we expect to see synthetic media being employed much more widely in disinformation campaigns in a variety of ways, which is pretty concerning. So, Dai, you said in your um, piece there that there was an ability with machine learning algorithms driven by data to drive artificial intelligence created media of all different types. And you mentioned that there was... Uh, an ability for it to create images that the human eye couldn't tell the difference between the synthetic and the real. Is that true? Yes, and that's um, increasingly becoming the case. So while this technology was really is less than ten years old, has been on you know commercially available or publicly available for less than you know roughly five years, we are now reaching to the point where there are types of synthetic media that humans can no longer discern from real authentic media such as uh, human faces. And uh, that, has def- that has been proven in recent academic studies. And we are just seeing a increasingly sophistication of this type of technology. So I, I'm wondering, Sean, before I let Di finally ask the question we said a minute ago, which is how do you actually mitigate this problem? When we come, come to talk about tradecraft in a second, if a human eye can't see the difference in images, what has tradecraft got to do to detect the anomaly, which is actually a synthetic image? Answer me that in a in a moment. But let me get back to Dai to the actual uh, question we did ask a few minutes ago. So Dai, given what you've said in terms of the definition and the development of the technology to create this synthetic image, this deep fake, how do we mitigate that? How do we deal with it? If the human eye can't see it, how do we deal with it? 
This is a great question. We can generally break down technological responses into prevention, detection, and mitigation. Most currently fall under detection. These would be called automated machine detection models, which examine the images, video, or audio fakes to detect anomalies uh, called artifacts, such as an accidental third arm or no face, or there can be more subtle artifacts such as minor warping, texture, or out-of-sync movement, which cannot be seen with the human eye. Experts in industry, government, and academia all working on trying to improve automated machine detection models from DARPA's Media Forensics Program to the 2019 Deep Fake Detection Challenge that was jointly run by Facebook, Amazon, um, along with a number of universities. The second category, prevention, also has some technology-based responses. So the predominant one would be AI adversarial attacks, where AI models um, are being used to hide noise in existing digital media that's invisible to humans, but that will disrupt the efforts of AI technology so that it cannot use uh, that information to generate synthetic media. The final category, mitigation, has broadly two principal technological responses that seek to mitigate the potential harm or impact a deepfake might have. So data provenance, also known as content provenance, focuses on ensuring the authentication of real digital content rather than detecting fake content. And it does this by recording the content's origin and relevant metadata ensuring that this information is accurately updated as the content is shared or altered. So you can think of it like blockchain before your digital media. Meanwhile, uh, we're already seeing widespread use of AI or digital technology tools to identify synthetic media um, after it's been shared online, um, such as automatically tracing its source and spread across platforms, cross-referencing against other data, and so on. Really, these tools aren't specific to synthetic media, but are utilized more broadly for any kind of disinformation content. So as you can see, there's a myriad of different approaches being taken to try to combat the use of, of uh, synthetic media for disinformation purposes. Okay. Well, that sounds to me, Di, like some of these technological detections of deep fakes or indeed as you described there, the authentication methods um, across different platforms and so on, is you had the tenor of it being emerging rather than well-established and that therefore the confidence that technology can detect what technology has created wasn't an absolute. It wasn't a given that we could detect these deep fakes, for example, uh, these synthetic media by other technology. Is it fair to say that we're nowhere near 100% or are we actually getting quite close to being pretty good at detecting these things? Um, I'd actually say we're getting worse. <laughs> so just like uh, it's harder for humans to detect and discern between what is real and what is fake, because these AI-generated media, uh, I guess these, these AI models are just becoming so much more sophisticated, they're becoming easier to use and more ubiquitous throughout the digital environment, it is becoming harder to use automated detection effectively, both because oh. the models to use to develop the detection systems are either becoming out of date or not applicable in certain circumstances, but also they're really hard to convince people to use and convince, let's say, platforms to integrate into their systems across the board. So yeah. where a social media platform, for example, might have a more robust detection regime, 
another might have a zero. And you can see how disinformation could slip by in, let's say, the second platform and then move on to spread through a wider, the wider environment through there. Wow. Okay. So we're getting not closer to the solution, but actually further away. So Sean, let's go back 10 years before uh, details of some of these technologies were starting to emerge. And all we had available to us, in quotes, all we had available to us was tradecraft. What are your thoughts then about what you just heard from Dai in terms of the synthetic media, the disinformation with intent that's permeating into the open source? How do we deal with that from a tradecraft perspective in your experience? Well, this is going to be an extreme challenge, I think, as a, a, that's a given. But particularly if you look at, so tradecraft, you know, one of the things that we always, always bang on about is the efficacy of the source. So the source material, making sure that it's assured as we talk about. And of course, you never, or you try not to rely on one source. You, you try to cross-refer between two, three, four, as many as you've got, basically, to validate what it is you're looking at. Now, if you haven't got the confidence that that that, that the source is is actually true, then that takes one away from you. So I think the way to, to resolve this, and Di's mentioned herself that we're nowhere near yet, is to develop the tradecraft to accommodate and to actually utilize this AI and the machine learning to say, you cannot trust this source, or you've got to weight the source and say, okay, in that case, what else do we need to look at? Now, of course, then you get into the challenges, as we've always had, of circular reporting, of, you know, cross-referring. And it, we, we used to get it all the time that, uh, you know, you, you get two different sources and you work out they're actually the same because it's been repeated or somebody has quoted somebody else and it comes around. So you've got to get to the origin of that source as well. So bringing it forward to today and the, and, and the, the challenges that, that Dai's uh, articulated is that, you know, first of all, find out where that source is from. So if, you know, the, the deep fake is emanating from, you know, China or Russia, then you've probably got a good start that yeah, you, what you're looking at is not necessarily true, but it might be. And then you've got to look at the data itself and see if it correlates with other data that you've got, and then you've got a chance. But, you know, it's back to the, the difference between information and intelligence. Intelligence is, is the best analysis you can come up with against the information you've got available, but you've got to weight that information. But as we get more and more of this disinformation coming across, and we're seeing it, you know, it's almost exponentially increasing, we are going to have to rely on the AI as it becomes mature. So there's absolute criticality to not only develop the AI so it becomes mature enough to trust it, but also to formally uh, include it into tradecraft and data analytics and the standards to make sure that we've a considered it and b if the information is is not accurate to to discard it as well so it's incredibly challenging and, and no. i don't think we're anywhere close well, to resolving well, hold, it yet. hold that hold that thought there about uh tradecraft for um some discussion in a minute about the so what for the intelligence community we'll come back to that Di, what, what I think I'm hearing is that we've seen the emergence of synthetic media, deliberate malintent disinformation put into the open source environment. We've seen technologies that were being developed to try and detect that. And it sounds like we've got into a sort of counter-counter-counter-counter situation where things are developing in a sort of war of AI, trying to find the best technology to counter the current developments of the most recent AI and so on. It feels to me like we're in a bit of an arms race there in terms of disinformation AI and disinformation detection AI. Is there any light on the horizon end of the tunnel that gives us some hope that we might actually get to a place where intelligence analysts, for example, will actually be able to use AI to detect and reliably detect deepfakes and disinformation? Is there any light at the end of the tunnel for that? 
So I would love to say that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but really with the direction technology is advancing on both the deception and counter deception sides, it's highly unlikely that technology by itself is going to be reliable enough to be the sole solution for authentication of data. Just to be clear, um, I am absolutely advocating that we continue to pursue technology-based efforts like automated detection, as they might yet lead to a more effective solution in the future that we've not simply thought of. An alternative metaphor we could use is that increasingly detecting AI-enhanced disinformation like synthetic media is going to be like climbing Mount Everest. If you just walked out tomorrow with only your shirt on your back and started climbing, you're not going to succeed. You absolutely require the fitness and skills or the tradecraft to even start climbing, and you, the specialized equipment or the authentication technology will certainly help. But even then, it's going to be incredibly hard to make it only under your own steam. You're going to need the support of others to get to the top. And it's this last part, the, the analyst being supported by other experts um, and stakeholders that I really do want to emphasize as being especially key for counting, countering disinformation like deep fakes. Analysts are not going to be able to do it all on their own, nor should they bear the burden of responsibility by themselves. Any kind of effective or sustained response is going to require other actors becoming more active participants, including uh, the AI tech companies, social media platforms, uh, government, and even digital consumers themselves um, will all need to take more responsibility for their roles in enabling the spread of disinformation if we hope to combat this effectively. I definitely hear the sort of ecosystem of players, stakeholders that would need to come together. My worry is that the, the incentive for them to do so is not yet, well, not, not to me anyway, evident to drive them to do so. But Sean, I think where I'm sitting from what I've heard from Dai is that this is a very challenging environment. The arms race of AI is ongoing. We're not doing very well. In fact, I think you said a moment ago, Dai, that the actual artificial intelligent technology solutions are going backwards in their efficacy, not forwards. So Sean, it seems to me that the blend of whatever technologies we do have at our at our fingertips, as well as good tradecraft, the combination of those two things is probably our best defense, our best mitigation against mis and disinformation. Sean? Yeah, I think that's right. And it goes back to the use of multiple sources. That's both, you know, the source where it's come from, but also the type of source, whether that is, you know, imagery intelligence is a little bit harder to to spoof, if you like. I'm talking about satellite imagery, that sort of stuff, you know, SIGINT, RF, all the rest of it. So you've got to layer on those different sorts of intelligence. But as I said previously, you know, to formally include that into the considerations, I think is important. You know, deep fakes are, are obviously a real challenge, but we don't we wouldn't always go to social media and videos to to find the source of anything so i, th I think we've got to balance that and i would say this wouldn't i but i don't think we should underestimate the experience and the knowledge of the analysts themselves you know the human brain can still do an awful lot that artificial intelligence can't and over time you get to get to feel that sort of there's something not quite right there particularly if you've already been down that route and you've proved it by, well, we looked at that source last time, we got it wrong. Why did we get it wrong? So it's it's actually, and this is as, as appropriate to algorithms as it is to the intelligence process, that if you've got a good algorithm over time, it will prove itself and you'll trust it. If you're a bad algorithm, you'll, you'll discard it straight away. And it's the same with the intelligence process. If you've got a source that clearly is, isn't, you know, uh, turning out to be right, then you're going to discard it.
Yeah, I just as an aside, although I think it's probably slightly relevant, I do sometimes worry we spend an awful lot of time talking about machine learning. And if there is effective mis or disinformation out there, I worry that we don't spend enough time talking about machine unlearning. That in other words, we found something to be not true. We need to unwind that out of all the systems that it's been percolated into. But maybe we can park that to one side. Di, I'm curious to know, given your experience and expertise in this area, have you seen any evidence of this sort of ecosystem of actors coming together to start to battle with this problem? Because I think what you've said to me in short is, this is really, really tough. We're going backwards in efficacy, but if we could bring together multiple stakeholders, it's possible we could build a technological and tradecraft-based system across many different platforms, different stakeholders, to start to defeat some of this. Do you get any sense that's actually happening? Have you seen any evidence of that starting to come together at all? Yeah. So there's a lot of really interesting counter disinformation work coming from a number of non-state actors in the intelligence ecosystem, but... I'd say it's worth highlighting uh, some of the collective efforts being conducted by civil society and the civilian OSINT community in particular. That these communities are especially good at uh, collaboration isn't surprising as it's always been a central part of their ethos. They've engaged in a number of different initiatives, um, including efforts to archive data being recorded in violent conflict, such as video um, or images or audio, to be able to be used for referencing um, later on and to be able to debunk disinformation on these topics. There's live fact-checking efforts via crowdsourcing as disinformation is being uh, spread uh, across the online environment. There's been a huge effort around the sharing and education of tradecraft skills amongst open source researchers to improve investigations, as well as the development of a number of different publicly maintained um, automated tools to help support verification of information in uh, various ways. And you can really see how the initiatives by these communities could be directly beneficial to an analyst's work, such as helping them verify a piece of uh, open source information by being able to compare it against publicly maintained databases or being able to run it through some of these openly available authentication tools. At a strategic level, the initiatives by these and other non-state actors is worth review by the intelligence community as a whole. Uh, when considering its own role in counter-disinformation activities. For example, um, some worthwhile questions might be, what lessons could it learn to better inform its own approach to detecting and mitigating disinformation? How might it be able to leverage the ongoing work of others to supplement or complement its own efforts? Um, Or how could it position itself to support the work of others that it might not be as well suited to accomplish? So there's a lot to unpack there, but that's, I think, a topic for potentially another episode. Yeah, that, Sean, that just shrieks at me. The analyst needs to come out of their vault occasionally and step into the open source environment to that ecosystem that Josh has talked about. Sean? Yeah, I, I think it's even more than that. And Diane uh, hit, hit the nail on the head there that I think this is an area where the commercial world industry can actually and has to take the lead because of the agility it has, because of its, its ease in, uh, and I'm not saying the, the the intelligence community in defense doesn't do this, but the ease in which it can, it can bring in new technologies. And of course, for its survival, I mean, you might argue that's the same with the intelligence community. You've got to be relevant to survive. 
But we all know, you know, open source intelligence organizations, and there's a few out there right now who are maybe more prominent than they should be. They're just spouting absolute rubbish because they've read it in the newspapers. Now, they won't last. last. They won't survive. Maybe with some of the mainstream media, they will. But, you know, they, they just don't have the efficacy to do that. So it really behoves the you know, organizations such as James to say, right, we have now applied all the rigor all the technology we can uh, to create the assured piece of it. And I don't think the intelligence community can do it on its own. It definitely can't because yeah. it's just got other, too many other things to focus on and the, the nature of the way it procures things. So I think there's a there's not just a role for um, for industry. I think it's, it, it will have to take the lead on this. So the intelligence community is going to need to be receptive to that uh, lead from that's the commercial true. sector. And that's that's not always easy. I mean, it's not always easy to step into the uh, outside world and, and listen because you're hemmed in from doing so. Di, I'm going to squeeze in one more question just because I'm dying to ask this question. It feels like it's a question that needs to be asked. And then we'll start to wrap up. Is there a difference between our ability to detect what we've been talking about mostly today, things like deep fakes, synthetic media, versus disinformation that's perhaps more text-based or more more based on things that we can actually attack with other tool sets. Is there any difference in the media types in terms of our efficacy to detect and beat them? So I would definitely say that it's harder for people to recognize AI-generated fake text than fake images um, or audiovisual media. I'm sure you've seen how realistic uh, the text generated by um, the new AI chatbot, chat, chat GPT, have been. And if you haven't, you should definitely go check it out. Uh, currently, automated detection tools to identify uh, text created by chat GPT are actually pretty accurate. But as the underlying technology continues to advance and as new models are created and used, uh, machine detection of this text is likely to become increasingly difficult in a very similar way, actually, that the automated detection of synthetic media has become. And um, so at the end of the day, it's really going to come back to good tradecraft techniques for authentication and approaching uh, AI-generated fake text in the same way you might approach non-AI-generated text. Well, if that's the case, I think there's a couple of takeaways, Sean, we want to get to in terms of the so what for the intelligence community. And just while you collect your thoughts, Sean, for the intelligence community message, a question I always ask at the end of these uh, podcast episodes is the one takeaway you wanted the audience to take away from this topic. Whilst you get your thoughts collected around that, before I go to Sean for the so what for the intelligence community, my takeaway from this, the one takeaway that I would like the audience to remember which I hope isn't going to steal the sandwiches from either of you, by the way, is that I had assumed that technology creating disinformation or even misinformation for that matter could be relatively easy detected and that it would be detectable, if not by the human eye with synthetic media, but it could be detected by machines. The, the sense I've got from this conversation is that that's actually far from true and worryingly so, which for me means we really, really do need to be very, very open to a multidiscipline approach, a large stakeholder group to ensure we get to, uh, quote, the truth, the fear that we otherwise focus on what is not actually true. So, Sean, again, I'm going to come to you last. I'm going to go to Di. What is your one takeaway you'd like to, for the audience to uh, to have taken from this session about around myths and disinformation, Di? Well, I think you stole my takeaway. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly important takeaway, though. So I just want to reemphasize that. I mean, this technology is here. It is rapidly advancing so much more than expected. It is incredibly hard to detect, and it's only going to get harder from here on out. 
And so I cannot over overemphasize how important it is for us to A, recognize that this, this technology has gotten that sophisticated, and then B, um, also understand that, as you were saying, a multi-stakeholder approach is really going to be the only effective solution here. And therefore, it's key for all stakeholders within the, the broader intelligence ecosystem to think about what advantages they have to bring to the table um, and how they can work with others to try to collectively push back against uh, disinformation. Perfect. Thank you, Di. Sean, the final word. And usually I'm going to make two points. And I think okay. the first point to make is that this is not just an IC-specific problem. We, we live in what I call a post-truth world. There's no question about it. So every element of national power, national security will have to consider this because you know the only way you can support decision-making is by getting as close to the truth as you can about what's actually happening and what's going to happen next. And that's the segue to the second piece is if the intelligence community wants to remain relevant – in line with all the other challenges it's got to deal with, it's going to have to really focus on this disinformation piece specifically, because otherwise the intelligence it provides, the so what, the what if, is just not going to be trusted and people will go their own route and make their own minds up against information that is clearly you know, not, not assured. So it's a really important one, this. Yeah. Well, look, um, Di, what can I say other than a huge thank you for helping us revisit a topic that's been enduring through many podcast episodes, the topic of mis- and disinformation, which you've certainly shone a light on for me. Uh, not necessarily a bright light, one that I'm a bit worried about, I won't deny, but thank you so much for your contribution and your time today. It has been a very, very interesting session. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. So did I. Sean, thank you as ever. And thank you to the listener. We'll speak again soon. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.